Uh, we've got more handouts up here if you need them, some in the back as well. If you want to grab one from back there. Let's pray together and then we'll uh, take a look at the Lord's Supper this morning together. Father, we thank You for the way that You nourish us and feed us. We thank You that You have uh, created us with a desire uh, for You and that can only be satisfied by You. And we thank You, Lord, that You have given us this meal uh, in which You do feed us in a very tangible way. And the way that uh, the, the mystery that takes place in that moment is Your Spirit enables us to, to feast upon You, our Lord Jesus. Uh, and Lord, we pray that You would be with us now and help us to understand Your Word more and to, uh, to marvel at the incredible glory of the benefits of this meal that come to us by Your Spirit. We pray through Christ. Amen. Alright, we, uh, we are talking about the sacraments. This is the fourth and final week of this series on the sacraments. Uh, you remember that uh, the first week we talked about sacraments in general, talked about how some of the difficulty we have when it comes to the sacraments is believing that God could nourish us spiritually through these physical means. That He would take something so tangible and in, in many ways so ordinary and use those means by the power of His Spirit to apply uh, the person and work of Jesus to us and all the benefits of His salvation. And, uh, and so th- this is a quote that I paraphrased and sort of butchered the first week uh, from C.S. Lewis that I have on your sheet. I wanted to put that out there. He's actually speaking directly about communion, so it was appropriate for this morning. He says, there's no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. This is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. Great quote, said in a very Lewis-esque way as well. Uh, I've got the, uh, the question and answer there to Shorter Catechism, question 92, that describes what a sacrament is. It's a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. We'll see how that applies this morning to the Lord's Supper. And paragraph from the Confession, which I won't read now. Uh, the last two weeks, we've talked about baptism. If you were here last week, we talked about infant baptism in particular. If you've got more questions about that, I can get you the handout. Um, it was also recorded if you'd like to listen to it, and I'd be happy to, uh, to talk some about it if you'd like. Um, okay, so now as we turn this week to the Lord's Supper, I, I mentioned this the first week, but it's interesting that when we think about the Reformation as Protestants, most of the time we think about primarily the issue of justification by faith alone. And that was certainly at the heart of the Reformation. One of the interesting things and somewhat, um, yeah, there there are good things or there were necessary things about this uh, conflict, but also unfortunate things as well. One of the uh, other core issues that arose um, was the question of the Lord's Supper and what's actually happening in the Lord's Supper. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church, medieval Catholicism, had a specific view of the Supper that the Reformers disagreed with, but then within the Protestant church, within the the, uh, camp of the Reformers, there was pretty significant diversity as well as to what the the supper actually was. I say it's unfortunate because it is a sacrament of unity, 
and it's to set forth and represent the unity, and it's uh, an issue over which the church is pretty significantly and seriously divided. So that's the unfortunate part. It was necessary because they're working towards what the Bible actually teaches on the sacrament. Um, our, our point, the point I want to make now, though, is that um, it's sometimes easy to, uh, to miss the importance of the sacraments in the Christian life. But that was certainly not the case for the Reformers. There were huge discussions, huge debates on this topic because the Lord's Supper is so important in the Christian life. This wasn't some minor piece of secondary doctrine that they were dealing with. This was something that was a, a primary way in which Jesus would give himself to his people, and that's why this was such a huge discussion. And so all that to say is that this is just a very important thing, and, and that's seen in the history of the church. So what I want to do is look at um, what the Scripture says about the Lord's Supper, then we'll just look real briefly at the Westminster Confession of Faith, which are our doctrinal standards. Um, but then I want to take... Um, I want to go at the, some of the theology of the supper from a real practical standpoint and ask the question, how does Jesus transform us through this meal? Why is this such an important thing for, uh, for the life of the church, for the people of God? And then try and deal with a couple of remaining questions at the end. So, uh, first, the Lord's Supper in the Bible. The background to the Lord's Supper, as it's given to us in the New Testament, comes from the Passover in the Old Testament. There are multiple feasts in the Old Testament as it goes on, but the primary place where, and we'll see this, where Jesus grounds uh, the, the Last Supper and institutes the Lord's Supper comes in the context of the Passover. So, um, I didn't, in order to keep the handouts a little smaller, I didn't print all the passages, so we're going to need to turn to some passages this morning. Um, if you want to grab the Pew Bible, we're going to look at Exodus 12 together. That's page 53 in the Pew Bible. And we're going to look at the first 28 verses, so hang with me here. Um, I was going to have people read, but wouldn't be mic'd then, and so that might be a little difficult. So you're going to have to listen to me read. I apologize. Uh, so we're going to look at Exodus 12. Uh, th this is, um, this is uh, the... Um, this is where Israel is about to come out of, uh, of captivity in Egypt. This is coming, um, this is right before the, the death of the firstborn, which will be uh, read about, or which we'll read about here in Exodus 12. But then, um, then the Exodus occurs right after this at the end of the chapter, where they actually go out from Egypt. So here is, here's the Passover, Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It should be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So you see already this, uh, the, the way that Jesus is then described as the Lamb of God, the one who's pure or spotless. You see what's happening here even um, in Exodus 12. Verse 7, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the, and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, 
roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And here's, here's where the name comes from. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this blood is to be the sign that will, that will be the, the, the sign uh, that, that will show this, uh, this angel of death that will pass over those homes with this blood. So it's the blood that's going to prevent this, from, this death from coming down on, this, on the firstborn of the houses of Israel. Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. They're going to do this in an ongoing way. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, and you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. So these are specific requirements as they will continue to observe this supper or this uh, uh, feast into the future. And then so here's uh, verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. To strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Hugely important background there. Uh, here are five important facts, things to, uh, to recognize from this meal. This comes from Keith Matheson's really helpful book, Given for You. It's on the book table. Uh, great book-length, book-length treatment of the supper. So he says, the Passover was a communal act of worship with a particular emphasis on families. This is a dynamic that's at work in this meal. Um, and you see that at the very end. Uh, secondly, the blood of the Passover lamb is a sign, very specific language, distinguishing the people of God from those outside the covenant. 
Um, this is going to be a sign to this destroyer who's passing over um, that these people belong to the Lord and those outside do not. It's going to be this blood that will, that will show that as a sign. Thirdly, the Passover lamb was sacrificed, and those who eat of the lamb were made partakers of that sacrifice. So it's as you eat this lamb that the benefits of the sacrifice of that lamb come to you in this very tangible act. You're made partakers of that sacrifice. Fourthly, the observance of Passover is to be a memorial, a feast in which God's mighty act of redemption is remembered. This is to continue on generation after generation. They're to talk about the significance of it. They're to recognize that they're a part of this deliverance, of this history, even uh, after this initial act of the death of the firstborn. Fifthly, the future generations that will observe the Passover will not merely remember a past act of God, Their dramatic reenactment of it illustrates their ongoing participation in this decisive act of redemption. So this will be the story of Israel, that they have been delivered from Egypt, and so all the Israelites from then on will continue to recognize that they they participate in that deliverance. Um, and, and that this is a meal is a way, a way in which they actually do that. So I know that was a lot on Exodus 12, but this is hugely important in understanding the significance of the supper. And you can see, even just with those five points, you probably recognize a lot of language from uh, the way we talk about the Lord's Supper, uh, and, and maybe even some, um, some very close parallels as to how we, we think about it. Okay, so into the New Testament. Uh, let's turn to Matthew 26. That's page 832 in your pew Bible. Matthew 26. So here's what we need to notice about this. We won't read all of this. But just take a look at Matthew 26, verse 17. Jesus says this. Now, on the, on the first, Matthew says this. On the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He, Jesus says, He goes into the city, go into the city, prepare it to sue a certain man, and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. This becomes the Last Supper. So this is Jesus very purposely celebrating and instituting this meal during the celebration of the Passover, okay? He specifically decided that this is going to be the event that he's going to connect here. So, so there's that. Uh, he institutes the Lord's Supper at, um, at this Passover meal, which is really important. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, I have this on your sheet. Paul calls Jesus our Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So there's a a very clear connection in the New Testament, both from Jesus and from Paul, and we could look at other passages to see this, that that this is the fulfillment of the Passover. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb, uh, the one whose blood atones for our sins, the one who prevents us from receiving what should rightly come to us in terms of judgment, condemnation, death, and punishment. So he's very, very uh, purposeful in seeing that as the fulfillment, um, as the Lord's Supper being the fulfillment of this Passover meal. 1 Corinthians 10. These are a couple other very important passages about the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. Verses 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Think back to Matheson's words about the participation in the Passover meal. 
The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So that's 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, let's, let's do open up to, let's just at least open up to 1 Corinthians 11. We won't read this whole passage. That's 9.58. This is the longest treatment in the New Testament of the Lord's Supper. Let me just highlight a few things from this passage uh, rather than reading it all. I, of course, say do read it all on your own time, but it would, uh, it would be a, take a bit to, to read. The, the issues here that the Corinthians are dealing with, and you see this throughout the letter, is that there, is, there, there are multiple reasons for division and disunity within the church uh, at Corinth. Uh, that they have all kinds of, of division happening. What's being addressed in this particular instance is you would have this meal celebrated in, it was a house church at the time, and it would be in the home of somebody who was wealthy enough to own a home and to fit a number of people in it. So there were sort of, there were the haves and then there were the have-nots. There, the church was made up of a, a diverse uh, group of people socioeconomically. But what happened in the Corinthian church is that they would have this meal, which was much more than just this right here, and some of the wealthier people who, uh, who could afford to provide the meal and be in this home were eating the food before the, the poor folks arrived and drinking all the wine to the point where Paul says they were actually getting drunk beforehand. Um, not what you want at the Lord's Supper, right? Uh, and, and so that's what Paul says. He says, you're not even, you're not even eating and drinking the Lord's, observing the Lord's Supper anymore. You've messed this thing up so badly and missed so seriously what's going on. And so he goes on to say then that, that he calls them to discern the body, and there's some debate as to what Paul refer, is referring to there. I think primarily he's talking about the body of the church. Because there is this division, he's not, the, the, it shows that they are not discerning the body. They're not recognizing the unity of this one bread that we break. Um, and so their, their actions and their behavior is betraying the sacrament itself. Um, and, and so that's a huge, huge problem. So he, he then speaks uh, and calls them to not do that, to examine themselves prior to coming to the supper. He uh, then speaks these words of institution again and, and talks a bit more about it. So that, that's basically what's happening in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, the Lord's Supper and the Westminster Confession of Faith. Here's a helpful summary paragraph that, of course, is packed full of stuff that we won't, um, won't be able to get to, but there, there's a good bit in here. Here's a good summary. Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood, called the Lord's Supper, to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death, the sealing of all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties to which, which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. So we'll try and unpack some of that through uh, the lens of this real practical question of how does Jesus transform us through the Lord's Supper? So, first, the Lord's Supper is communion. You see that word in there, and we call it that often. The Lord's Supper is communion with Christ by the Spirit. 
So th- this sacrament, and this is one way in which it differs from, uh, from baptism. Baptism uh, uh, points to and sign- signifies and seals the, the one-time character of entering into the visible body of the church, of being united to Jesus, of regeneration, of engrafting into Christ, of all these things that we talked about last week. And so it's to be administered one time in the way, in, in, and that shows in what it is signifying. The Lord's Supper, on the other hand, as a, as a meal of nourishment, is one that, that is uh, pointing to this ongoing communion with Jesus. And that's why, we, uh, that's why we continue to practice it as we do. It's one of ongoing spiritual nourishment and growth. So we continue to need it in that way. So, uh, Lord's Supper's communion with Christ by His Spirit. Um, so much of, this, uh, of, of the, the, the question of the, um, uh, of the Reformation was, what does Jesus mean when He says, this is my body? That was a huge, huge part of this debate. In what sense uh, uh, does He mean that phrase um, that, that, come in the, that comes in the words of institution? Well, I've got 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17 there, if you want to glance back at that passage that is printed for you. It, it says something significant about, that, about this. It says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or a fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So there's some sort of element here of our participation in Christ's body. And so, I think the best, one of the best ways to say the, the, the way in which Jesus is present in the supper is by saying He is really personally present in the meal. Okay? Here's what the confession says. We'll explain this more in a moment. 29.7. Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament, do then also inwardly, by faith, really and indeed yet not carnally or corporally, which would be this uh, um, in his actual literal physical body, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in, with, or under the bread and wine, yet as really but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. Um, and, and where it says spiritually there, think capital S. That could be, uh, that, that's by the Holy Spirit. Um, really spiritually present. So he, here's what this says. It means that communion is not merely a time to think, reflect, and meditate on Christ's death. It is that for sure, but that's not all that's happening. That's not the, the, the whole, the sum uh, benefit of this meal. Just the, the remembering and thoughts that you would have about Jesus. Though that's important, good, and right. It's part of it. So it's not just a devotional aid. That's not the only thing that's happening here. And um, because as the standards say here, and uh, pointing to 1 Corinthians 10 and what Jesus says... There is a sense in which we genuinely, really, by the power of the Spirit, feast upon Jesus and His benefits in this meal. Here's, here's a, a, a wonderfully, uh, a, a really beneficial aspect to this. It's that that comes as good news to us, in that the benefit that you would receive from this meal is not just about the sort of devotional thoughts that you conjure up in that time. Now, again, that's a good thing to do, to think, reflect, 
and, uh, and remember all that Jesus has done. But you know there are times where there's more of that in our experience and less of that. Um, the beautiful thing about the, this understanding of the supper is that there are benefits that come to you even when you're not having the best of devotional thoughts in this meal. And so here's what, uh, here's what Michael Horton says about this. He says, I had without malice but with plenty of ignorance turned the sacraments of Christ's doing and dying into my sacrament of feeling and remembering. And so when we believe that, that Jesus is truly present in the supper and that by the Spirit He feeds you and He nourishes you, that's something that depends less upon you and much more upon Him and His grace to us. And so here's another quote from, uh, from Horton. The liberating news of Scripture is that even here, even now, God is acting for my salvation. Just as the gospel is about God doing everything in Christ for my salvation, not giving me any place to boast, the sacraments have the same message. It's because Christ is truly present in the sacrament that I can turn from myself to the one outside of me. And then a quote from Van Der Zee. So we may speak of a real spiritual presence in and through the sacrament. Christ, Christ in his transfigured, resurrected, and glorified humanity actually comes to us, nourishes us with the benefits of his salvation, and transforms us into his image. To say that this happens spiritually in no way diminishes its reality. Christ in his whole person fills the whole human soul and body with himself. Okay, so, um, yeah, go ahead, Doug. That's great. Good time for questions. Yes, and the Spirit is at work in the meal, uh, in the sacrament, every time. Um, you, may the, you may not. Yes, yeah. It's your, your feelings aren't the aren't the adequate indicator as to whether there's spiritual benefit coming to you. Now that said. Um, we give ourselves, I mean, you even think of the preaching of the Word, like there are benefits that can come from the preaching of the Word, but we benefit much more so when we're prepared to come to receive Jesus and His, His Word in very substantial ways. Um, in the same way, that, that's the same way with the Supper. So preparation, and there's a specific question in the larger catechism that asks that question, how should we prepare? And um, we'll talk a little bit about that at the end. Um, so there, there is greater benefit to be received as we give ourselves to, to the sacrament. But our benefit, the benefit we re- receive, is not based just upon the feelings and emotions that you might be experiencing in that moment. Does that, that answer the question? Uh, so we, we can benefit in a greater way as we prepare and give ourselves, but it's not as though uh, it depends upon us in the end. Um, any other questions on that? Yeah, Max. Yeah, why, okay, Max's question was, why just with the twelve? Yeah, I think that this is, uh, and this is similar in baptism too, where the so much of what comes to the church, um, what is instituted by Jesus, goes first to his, the immediate disciples, but it's not, um, 
it's not just exclusively for them. They then serve as the, um, as the beginning of the church in some ways that then comes to the rest of God's people. And so there are plenty of... Um, I mean, even the Great Commission is given just to His disciples there. But of course we know that that's a call then to all of His disciples that, that we also are a part of to then go and, um, and proclaim this, this good news. So it's, it's, a, uh, it's just in the institution that it's with his immediate disciples then to be practiced um, with the rest of the disciples as well, which he says to do, um, do this in remembrance of me in an ongoing way until I return. Yeah, Andrew. Yes, there's a great quote coming from Calvin here that says that same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can think of spirit at work in, in communion. I can remember Christ. Mm-hmm. But I don't really understand what would I be like to know somebody else. Mm-hmm. What it looks like for Christ to be personally and really present. Yeah. And not sound like I do like uh, Mary Catholic in that explanation. Mm-hmm. Or I have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, that, you just teed me up perfectly right there, um, because that's what, what we'll do is we'll talk about that very thing right now. Um, and, and it, Calvin's quote is still totally appropriate to say there is immense mystery that's happening here, but here's where we'll, we'll try and, um, inch up upon an explanation here. Other views of Christ's presence in the supper. Here's the issue to deal with. Jesus says, this is my body. Um, Jesus now is... In, he inhabits his resurrected, glorified body in heaven now. Jesus is physically inhabiting a body right now. That's an important part of this. Um, so how, the question then is, how could this risen and ascended Christ, who is in heaven at the right hand of the Father right now, in a physical, glorified, resurrected body, going to be present here in this meal? That's our question. Here's how the uh, Roman Catholic Church has answered that. Uh, this view is called transubstantiation. So what they say is that the elements actually become, in some sense, the physical body and blood of Jesus. Okay? Um, this happens through the, um, through the words of institution, and then the substance is actually changed. Now this is, we won't, I won't get into all this. That's, that's a technical term for them, substance, which is based, they're, the way that they think of the world, uh, particularly in medieval uh, Catholicism, was on a, a view of Aristotle's view of the world, Aristotle's metaphysics. We won't get into that, but he would say there's accidents and, sub, and, and a substance. And so it's the substance that has changed so that we would actually then feast upon Jesus' body and blood in a physical way. Now, the problem with that is that if this is actually Christ's body and blood, then Christ becomes, he's then in some ways sacrificed each week. And so then there were superstition that arose in the context of that. Um, so then the Lutherans uh, come along in the Reformation and say, no, this is not right. This, the, the, the Mass is mistaken in this. Um, but Jesus has got to be physically present because that's the only Jesus we have, is this physical uh, Jesus, Right? And so what they say, then, is uh, Christ is physically present in the supper, but the bread remains the bread, and so he's, he is in with and under 
the sacrament. So he's somehow physically present in some way when we come to this meal. Uh, The problem with that is that, um, as we said, Jesus exists in a physical, glorified, resurrected body. He can be present everywhere in terms of his divinity by the power of his spirit. But then, the reform, then Calvin and others would say, you can't divide his humanity, though, and say that Jesus is physically present right here and over here at the Assembly of God Church, and Jesus is also present at the Baptist Church down the street, and that his uh, humanity would then be divided in some ways. So that, that can't be, that, that messes up our understanding of Jesus' uh, who and what, how Jesus is to us now. But there was an attempt still to maintain that uh, Jesus is physically present. Another view that did not hold to Jesus' presence in the supper was that of Zwingli, which became just a symbolic memorialism, which he, he said Jesus is, is, not, uh, is not present in this meal in any special way. He's not present in any way here that he's not present in the rest of the world by the power of a spirit. So it really did just become a sacrament of remembering, that it's really a memorial, it's just about remembering. So the problem with that would be then that he does, it doesn't do justice to this statement, this is my body, nor to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10. So here's how Calvin tried to put all this together. Jesus is really physically, spiritually present, or is very, is really, uh, inhabits a physical body in heaven, right hand of the Father, resurrected, glorified body. He says in this meal, this is my body, that we actually participate and feed upon him. So what Calvin says is that we, by the power of the Spirit, are taken to Christ in the Supper, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we commune on the risen and embodied Jesus Christ in body and blood. So Jesus' humanity is not divided all over. We, instead, are taken to Him by the Spirit. Now, that's sort of helpful then um, to see uh, how do we deal with Jesus' physical humanity, his glorified body. Um, at the same time, uh, Andrew, it, it is still pretty mysterious to say, okay, that explanation maybe kind of works, but the Spirit takes us to Jesus. And, um, and that's where then uh, Calvin says this. After explaining this, spending plenty of time talking about it, Uh, Now, if anyone should ask me how this takes place, I shall not be ashamed to confess that it is is a secret too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. And to speak more plainly, I rather experience than understand it. So it's an attempt to do justice to the whole of Scripture and all that's said about the supper, and we're still left with a pretty significant mystery. But um, I do think uh, that, that we do commune with Christ by the power of the Spirit, um, with the risen, embodied Christ, by the power of the Spirit, is what we need to hold to, and does bring to us the significance um, of His presence with us, without either turning it into something that's superstitious, or Jesus being sacrificed, nor His humanity being torn in some ways. Yeah, Clint. Uh huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. 
Ritterboss is good on that. Um, I do think that there's question as to how much that's actually saying about the Lord's Supper. I think it is speaking about the Lord's Supper. Maybe, and maybe it's better to say it's there's a in a secondary way. John is the one of the four Gospels that doesn't have uh, the words or the institution of the Lord's Supper, and so I think I think it's really hard to read that without thinking sacramentally. Um, and so I do think that there are real um, that that there are things to help us understand the supper in that passage for sure. And actually, at the end, I recommend even meditating on that passage as a way to prepare for the supper. Robert Letham has a little book on the Lord's Supper, and he's got a great, it's a, very, it's a short book, and it's, he's got a great section there on John 6. And Keith Matheson's book is longer, but it's got good stuff on John 6 as well. I do think that's, that informs our understanding of the sacrament, even if it's not the, um, even for those who would hear it the first time in John 6 before his death, they would have not had a clear understanding of what was coming, of course. Other questions? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, yeah. Yeah, or maybe, or just to flip that around and say essentially the same thing as the Spirit takes us to Christ in, in that way, rather than bringing Christ to us, but same, same sort of way, and that, that it, is by, it is by the Holy Spirit that we um, participate in Christ and receive all of the benefits of His work for us and the way in which we um, are nourished and sustained in an ongoing way. Um, yeah. Yeah, let me go. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it, it comes to us in that we receive... Um, we receive all of his benefits in that way, but it is by it's all by the Spirit that that takes place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he he comes to us in that if we think of the Spirit being the way in which we he condescends to us, the way that we receive all those benefits. I think. He comes to us in his divinity in that way, but in feasting upon his humanity, it's, his humanity is localized in a glorified and resurrected body, and so it must be by means of the Spirit. And so, I, I don't know, I mean, that's Van Der Zee's language on that front, and maybe I would just not like his language as much there um, in order to keep it clearer in that way. Um, so, then, yeah. <laughs> yes, Max. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Yeah, as long as we understand that the disciples were not limited to just the twelve, but all of his disciples then. So we as his disciples then rightly participate in those things because we're the recipients of that, of his death and resurrection benefits of it as well. Yep, Brian. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'd make a distinction. Yeah, that, that's good. That's a good question. Um, I'd make a distinction between, not, not that we don't know it, but I'm thinking that not just thinking if I have a strong emotional experience in the moment that I would be receiving uh, a benefit. So faith looks different at different times for sure. And so sometimes faith might just be just clinging to these promises and just trying to believe them in spite of your feelings otherwise. I think in that moment, it's not, you're still benefiting significantly from the supper in that moment even though it's not this great emotional experience where you have kind of an overwhelming sense of God's goodness to you. It's just kind of just clinging to the promises in those moments. So that would make a distinction between an emotional experience or a, a, a great experience, devotional sort of mountain-high kind of feeling versus a faith that trusts throughout our, the whole experience of the life of faith. Yeah, okay, one, one more and then we've got to go on. Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, that's, I'm going to punt on that. That's a, I mean, it would be a redemptive historical question of like, yeah, does, does the second person of the Trinity show himself in certain ways in the Old Testament? Yes. Jacob wrestling, um, yeah, that's some pre-embodied uh, uh, second person of the Trinity manifesting himself. But we start thinking, like, what does that mean? Um, that, so I, we could talk about that. I th- that's a separate question, I'd say. I don't think it informs much of our understanding of the Supper. Um, short answer. Um, okay, let, let me move on here. So, this, so the way that then we then receive this, the receive Christ, it's always to faith as with all sacraments. So it is always by faith that we would receive this. And the Holy Spirit is the one who accomplishes this, taking us to Christ, that we would then um, receive him by faith. So, um, yeah, look at B. Okay, we'll move real quickly here. This is probably a little more... Um, this, this is the easier way to think of things, the, another benefit of the Supper. The Lord's Supper is a remembrance of the death of Christ and of our forgiveness. So we, we said it's not merely a time of remembrance, but it is that too, where we do think um, and remember his death, just in the way that the, uh, that the Israelites remembered the Passover. So it's, it, it's not a remembrance of one who has died and is absent from us, but one who has risen and is present with us now. It's that kind of remembrance. 
Um, good quote from Wright there as to how this works. Uh, Larger Catechism 172. Uh, this, is, this is good. This, maybe actually, Brian, this gets some at your question as well. May one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper. This is how they answer this. Um, one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have true interest in Christ, though he may not yet be assured thereof. And in God's account, hath it, if he, if be, if he be duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it, means I want Jesus, even though I don't really feel it right now, and unfeignedly desires to be found in Christ and to depart from iniquity, in which case, because promises are made and this sacrament is appointed for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians, he is to bewail his unbelief and labor to have his doubts resolved. So here, here's where they were going with that. And so doing, he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper that he may be further strengthened. So we come, even with our, our doubts and struggles, uh, there's not this perfection of faith. This, it's a faith that clings to Jesus even when we're not ex- feeling it. Um, so it provides real assurance to us. That's what uh, Heidelberg uh, Catechism 81 gets at. This gives us assurance because we remember that this is what Jesus has done for us. Um, it proclaims the death of Christ. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is a, ver- or this is a, uh, a, uh, a way in which the, the uh, death of Christ is proclaimed in the form of this, this meal. Um, the Lord's Supper symbolizes and furthers the unity of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10 gets at this. It symbolizes the unity. That's why we have this one bread. That's why we confess what we do before the meal in our, uh, in our liturgy. And then it furthers the unity as well. Because it's a participation in Christ, Jesus is actually forming us more and more into a united people. So this becomes a, a way in which, because, the, uh, because Jesus is active in us and it's a participation in Christ... Um, our relationships with one another are furthered in this way. Uh, quick quote from Matheson, If believers are united to Christ and are the body of Christ, and if the Lord's Supper is the sacrament in which our union with Christ is strengthened and nourished, then it should be a time in which our communion with the other members of the body of Christ is also strengthened. The Lord's Supper is not merely a subjective and individualistic time of private meditation on what Christ has done for me. It's a communal meal for the covenant family of God. Um, and then uh, two last points here. The Lord's Supper is a foretaste and anticipation of the wedding feast of the Lamb. The uh, Lord's Supper shows how to live the life of the kingdom of God and intensifies our longing for its fullness. Um, there will come a day where we uh, have a feast that's much greater than just one small piece of bread and one small piece or one small drink of wine. Uh, Lord's Supper places us in the midst of God's redemptive story. This is, uh, again, think back to the Passover where we participate in this meal and receive the benefits of what Jesus has done for us. And, and, and we are in a particular place in God's work in the world. Um, we are a part of his people that continues to proclaim this message and to embody this message in the world around us. And, and while, all the while longing for his return where he'll finish his work and make all things new. Okay, so how can we give ourselves to the grace of God in the Lord's Supper? Um, one, attend worship. <laughs> Um, that, that's a huge, hugely important thing. Um, prepare by meditating on Jesus' words in John 6. That's a great passage to look to. There are others, but that's a really good one. Um, prepare by ensuring that you're in right relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ so much as it depends on you. So that's the issue in, for the Corinthians in large part is that there are these huge divisions where they're actively despising one another 
and yet still coming to the meal. That's a problem. It cuts um, at some of the meaning of the supper. Um, so, uh, preparing by, to, to, uh, be, by being in right relationship. Um, okay, remaining questions. We are, we are it's 1049. Um, this is a big question. When should baptized children come to the table? Um, you can see the larger catechism says that basically it's, um, it is for the, uh, those who have professed faith and can examine themselves, and so they should come at that point. There are questions about this. Some who believe that uh, they should, children should be admitted by virtue of their baptism and not um, by profession of faith. Um, the practice of our denomination is to require profession of faith of children. What I would recommend, I was wanting to talk some about this. There's this, uh, if you want to explore that question more, if that's something that you've got um, questions about, the PCA's report, which is listed underneath the, uh, for further reading, has, uh, they, they've studied this question of pedo communion. There's a majority report that says children should profess faith before they come to the table. There's a minority report that says, no, it should just be by virtue of their baptism. You can read that, evaluate those arguments yourself, and see where you come down. Um, yeah, let me pray for us. Again, uh, uh, this is a bit frustrating. With, uh, like, maybe this should have been eight weeks rather than four weeks. Um, but I felt like this every week. Uh, I really do welcome further conversation about this. So if you've got nagging questions, don't let them remain nagging. Um, Nag me about it, okay? Um, So we could talk more about it, and um, I could point you in the direction of some other resources that might answer them in in a better way. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you've sent your Son for us. Thank you for his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And thank you uh, that you've sent your Spirit. And we thank you uh, that uh, our Lord Jesus has given us this meal in which we feast upon him. And that, um, and that by faith we are nourished and fed. And we pray that uh, that, that would continue to occur. And that we would more and more uh, love you and love people around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.